Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see your faces. Hey, I wanted to start this morning by asking if everyone had a copy of the word in front of them today, even if it's on your phone. If not, Brandon's in the back here. Just lift your hand up and he'll bring you a copy of Romans. Um, It's going to be important as we scour the scriptures today that you be able to quickly reference it. And even though we will have stuff up on the screen, oftentimes it's much easier and better for you to get to it. So if you need a copy of the text this morning, Brandon is in the back. Just slip your hand up. He will bring you one quickly. We wanted to provide that for you today. I also apologize for the crackling of the microphone because my beard is longer than TJ's. And yes, that's a flex. Um, So uh, my beard is scratching the microphone and I'm going to try to prevent that. We're going to start in the text this morning. All right. We're going to start in it. We're going to open up God's word and we're going to read it aloud together. So if you wouldn't mind, stand with me as we read it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set The mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, and I would say this about us in here, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In you, Christ Jesus, come this morning. Holy Spirit, reveal to our eyes the complexities and yet the simple truths 
that reside in this text for us, the believer. God, you have spoken and your word is powerful and mighty and it is able to move us, God, and to teach us. So Lord, by your spirit, would you communicate the things that you would have us take this morning from this text as we explore it together. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. If you've been following along, then you know that this week we are starting Romans chapter 8. We've been in a marathon of a series through Romans, and we're coming up on the halfway point. And we're going to take a small detour, not really detour, that's not really the right word. We're going to continue on. But in the continuing on, we are going to do almost a small sub-series within the bigger series that is chapter 8. We're going to spend, just a little spoiler alert, the next four weeks in this chapter. You might recall last week, TJ gave you a little sneak peek and told you, hey, chapter 8 is oftentimes referred to as one of, if not the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. That might seem hyperbolic or like hyperbole. I'm not sure if hyperbolic's a word. It might seem like hyperbole, but once... We have read this together and parsed it out. You might find yourself seeing why that statement, such a strong statement, was made. See, it's in this chapter that we are told there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We just read that. It's in this chapter that we are told that the Spirit of God dwells in us. It is in this chapter that we are told we will have life eternal return to us, even in our mortal bodies. We didn't quite get there just now, but we're about to be told in the next text beyond this that we are adopted into the family of God and given sonship and daughtership into that family. It's in this chapter that we are given hope of a future glory to come. We're given more insight into exactly how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. We're told of an incredible victory that we already have and that which is still to come. And last but not least, we are told that there is nothing, not one thing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God. And that is why this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Now, you may be thinking that, why do we even preach it, Clayton? You just spoiled the whole thing for us. No, these are truths that is necessary for us to hear over and over and over and over again and more than just on Sundays. These are truths that we ought to be speaking to ourselves daily. These truths, these declarations of what has been done to us and for us, what is being done to us and for us and what will be done to us and for us are worth mentioning over and over and over again. We are beginning to move on. We are beginning to move on from what sin has afforded us. We're beginning to move on from the broken, fallen state of man, and we are beginning to move on into who Christ has made us and called us to be. So now, let's go ahead and start unpacking this particular text that we have this morning. 
and really truly taking time to appreciate and rejoice in these truths that God has said about us. So you might ask the question, if this is a series over Romans 8, why did you start in Romans 7, verse 22? That would be a good question to ask. And the reason is quite simple, because the very first verse of chapter 8 starts with a therefore statement. Anytime you start with a statement that says therefore, just a little personal note, it's a very good idea to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? It's a cute little phrase that was taught to me in college. What is that therefore, therefore? We must understand the context. And so the context for us is what Paul just got done talking about and what TJ preached about last week in Romans 7. I'm not going to re-preach TJ's sermon, but I am going to give you some highlights. We learned of two laws. One law that is in the inner being or mind, God's law. One other law, man, that's annoying, that is in the members of his flesh, or, in other words, the law of sin. We learn that these two laws, they're at constant war with one another, and in the contrary to what some perhaps preachers might preach, we learned that each one wins from time to time. Sometimes the law of sin and death in the members of our flesh win, and sometimes the law of the inner being and God's law working itself out in us, sometimes it wins. And Paul ends chapter 7 with a question. He says, who will deliver us? And then he goes on to say, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He will deliver us. But then it's the last sentence. The last sentence that is incredibly important for what we are talking about today. Paul goes on in the last sentence. He kind of leaves us in a weird spot. He says, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now it's important to note here that Paul is speaking from a born-again Christian believer's stance. This is not a statement he makes about someone who is lost or outside of the family of God. This is about himself who was very much inside the family of God. This is a struggle that continues beyond conversion, beyond our baptism. It's important to note that. And then we must ask the question, well, what does this mean for us? And that is where we enter chapter 8. And chapter 8 begins with a boom. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have a note here that says pause for effect. So I'm going to say it again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a theology out there that maybe perhaps some of you grew up in 
It was very prevalent in my area of the, of the woods. And it teaches that when a person sins, even if they're born again, that that salvation is lost at the moment of their sin and that until they have properly asked for forgiveness and repented, they are separated from God. This verse and chapter 7 calls that theology an outright lie. Some of you may have grown up with that, and I just want to free you from that thought. If that thought still creeps back into your mind today, just know that that's a lie from hell. There is no condemnation, none, not a single ounce of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The sins of the flesh of the body do not win over the righteousness of the inner being that is given as a gift of redemption that Jesus paid on the cross and that came to you through the hearing and believing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in that. We can rejoice in that. I could stop preaching right now. It would be the shortest sermon in Redemption Hill history. Some of you would say hallelujah. I could stop preaching right now. We could sing for the next hour, and today's worship service would have been a magnificent success because of what I just said. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is really, 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 infinite, really good news. And guess what? That's verse one. That's verse one. And I got a cool light show happening up here. The Holy Spirit is definitely moving. We got 38 verses to go in this chapter. How much better can it get? And guess what? It does. So let's go back to the text and let's take a look here. The next little bit here, the next one and a half verses, verses 2 and 3a. They start to explain to us in more detail why there is no condemnation and how God has done this. It says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Why is there no condemnation? Condemnation? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And what do we mean by condemnation? It's a good note. This is why you should always, men, if you're, if you're preaching, this is why you should always ask your wife for advice. She made a good note about this. She said, you know, most people may not even understand what condemnation is. You might take a second. What is condemnation? Condemnation here is very, very specific. It is not hard. You will end up in hell. That is what condemnation is. Your sin has earned hell. If you die without repentance, that is condemnation. Your sin deserves hell, and it will go to hell one way or the other, with you or without you. That's plain and simple what this condemnation means. Why is there no condemnation? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
There were two laws. We've already talked about that. One of them is evidently stronger than the other one. And that really kind of makes sense when you think about it. If one law, the law of sin and death, has the power to captivate you, to hold you captive, and the other law, the law of God, has the power, the law of the Spirit, has the power to set you free, then it only makes sense that that law, which can set you free, is stronger than the law that can hold you captive. If the law that could hold you captive were stronger, then the law that could set you be free could not be called the law that can set you free because it wouldn't be strong enough to do so. This law is the law of the Spirit. And now in verse 3, we actually see another use of the word law. Whenever it says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, that law right there, I believe, in my studies, is referring to the law of Moses. The law that came to us through the commandments and through the established tenets of the faith in Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus and all those fun books. That law never had the power to do what this new law, the law of the Spirit, can do. All that law could do was point out our sin. All that law could do was to say, this is unrighteous, don't do it. And if you do it, you will be condemned. That is all the power that law had to do. Not to save you, not to set you free, simply to show you what right and wrong is. So that law was only good for condemning us and showing us and teaching us what is right, but not actually doing what God alone can do. For it says, for God has done what this law could not do. What is that? What did he do? What is this law of the Spirit? Clayton, you keep using this vague term, law of the Spirit. What does that mean? It's not really that mysterious. It's a heart change. It's a transformation from the inside out. Garrett got my back this morning. I came in this morning and I was talking. I said, man, I really love that song, Inside Out. I wish we were doing it. He said, bro, it's in there. I said, what? That is what the law of the Spirit is, this inner change, this thing that can only happen on the inside is something that only God can do. And how did he do this? How did we get to this place where this can be done? If you keep reading in 3b and onward, he says, this has been done, this thing that could not be done, this changing of our hearts, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus came and he condemned sin. He condemned sin in the flesh by proving that there was something more powerful 
than sin in death. And what is that thing? That thing is the Spirit of God. Yes, that Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit that resided in Jesus Christ, get this, this floored me this week. This thought, this idea that I knew to be true just had me in awe. The very same Spirit, the exact same Spirit that resided inside of Jesus, that, that Spirit that kept him from ever committing a sin on this planet so that he could be the righteous sacrifice for us, the only sin, the only flesh ever born into a sinful world and with a sin nature, but yet never sinned. Why did it not sin? Because it had the Holy Spirit in it from the beginning. And that kept it from sinning because Jesus lived by it perfectly and forever. That same Spirit, His, is in you and me if, in fact, we have accepted it through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know if that thought just floored me. That thought had me just pausing, lifting my hands in an empty room with no one around to see, and praising and worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. That's a powerful, powerful thing, dear Christian, that the very same power that kept Jesus from ever committing one sin exists inside of you and I now who have believed. Let's keep going, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to test the mind, or for to set the mind, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, don't overcomplicate this. Living according to the Spirit does not mean that you will never commit another sin. You still have a sinful flesh. I still have a sinful flesh. And that it flesh is dying. That flesh will die. It will pass away because of the sin that it has committed already. But remember, Paul said there are two laws. There's a law at work in my inner being. There's a law at work in the members of my flesh, the members of my flesh being my hands, my eyes, my tongue, my ears, my sexual organs. And these flesh, this flesh desires to do what is antithetical to the law, what does not correspond to God's law. That law has been broken by each and every one of you in here. And because of that, that flesh is dying and it will die. But it does not mean that your mind, but what this does mean, rather, is that your mind and your inner being is no longer scheming. 
You're no longer plotting in your heart against the things of God. You're no longer saying, I do not care. When those members of your own flesh sin, you care. This is what it means to have the Spirit of God living in you because the inner being is groaning. It's going, oh, no. No. It hates sin. You no longer are seeing God's commands as a burden or an offense but rather as gift and as light. Look at verse 7 with me, if you will. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. A mind that is set on the flesh does not and cannot submit to God's law. So what in this particular verse is God's law referencing? Because as best I can tell, Paul refers to God's law in about five different ways in this text. In this particular case usage, I believe it is talking about the simple law, the one summation that we hear of the law that Jesus says and that other people throughout the Bible say, love God, love others. I believe that's what law is being spoke of here. And what this is saying is that the heart that is set on the flesh cannot honor that very simple basic rule of loving God and loving others. It may pseudoly do one, but it will not do both. And it certainly will not do either correctly. Now there's a common objection here that arises at this point in conversation because we are all of the flesh. We were once outside of the family of God and we have very dear people in our lives who are outside of the family of God. And so the objection goes something like this. Does this mean that a lost person can never do a good thing or even a godly thing? No, that's not what this means. That's not what this means at all. What it means is that the heart posture of a person who is living by the flesh is never that of submission to God's law out of love for God. It's never to do God's law or stay in accordance with God's law out of the simple love for God. The motive is different, even if their actions are right. That is what this means. This is why it doesn't matter, the actions. Good or bad, they earn you nothing outside of the Spirit of God. So a person who has learned to operate with decency in our society may unintentionally honor God's law, but they have no desire to do it out of love for God. The vast majority of people in our society do not murder and would call murder wrong. Believe it or not, not every lost person out there is a murderer. If that's the news to you, wake up. The vast majority of people out there believe that lying isn't a good thing. 
If you were just to ask a common person, non-believer, hey, is lying a good thing? Most of them would say, no, shouldn't lie. It's bad. Most people out there are going to see stealing as wrong. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take someone else's stuff. See, in our society, if you live by these standards, we'll even call that person, oh, they're a good person. And they may even believe on a deep level that those things are wrong. And that's because, listen, God's law also makes sense, right? I mean, in order for a society to function, some of these things has got to be true. We, we can't function if we're going around murdering each other all the time. You know? Like, that just doesn't work. And beyond that, even for a lost person, they still have a sense of right and wrong, right? We've already talked about that in Romans 1. God has written a code on us, so we, we, we kind of get it, right? Like, we know, like, in our gut, like, there is a right and a wrong, and this is kind of wrong. Now, the further we grow apart from God, the blurrier those lines become. But even the most depraved mind has some sense of right and wrong. So it shouldn't surprise us that from time to time, we ourselves in our lostness did the right thing. But that's not what God desires. God doesn't desire moralists. Jesus didn't die on the cross to create a more moral society and a more moral people. God desires worshipers. He desires people who live according to his spirit, not his written code. This means that there is an internal transformation that takes place and that the old man and the old way of thinking is put to death. When I was in high school, I never drank. You know, drinking was against the law for underage people. My parents had told me not to drink. And doing so would have been sin because I would have been disobeying the law, dishonoring my parents. By the way, both of those are sins, young men. So I never did that. But the reason why I never did that wasn't because doing so would have broken God's heart. The reason why I never did that was because I thought I might get in trouble. I was a basketball player and a baseball player, and I thought drinking beer makes you bad at those things because, you know, it's not healthy, and you, you mispractice, and then you get suspended, and you can't go to games. I didn't do those things because, quite frankly, I thought people who did were morons. I saw them in school, and I didn't like them. And I didn't want to be like them. So I didn't do it. Good for me. Now, on the other hand, there were many of God's explicit laws that I did find myself breaking with little to no second thought or concern. I was a cheater. I was a habitual liar. And when I say liar, I don't mean just that, you know, I kind of lied from time to time. Like, I lied all the time especially in like con, you know, conversations that I just wanted to make myself sound better and telling stories that never happened about myself and these, these uh, types of things. Just trying to build myself up. I was cocky. My mouth was horrible. Horrible. 
Not only was my speech just very unruly and inappropriate, it was used to just tear others down. Gossip and slander were in rampant. Oh, it was bad. It was bad. My relationships were a mess. Everybody was an object for me to use to get what I wanted, including girls. That was how I lived my life. And you know what? I found the rules and the commands of God that are laid out in the Bible about those things to be old-fashioned. You know, just, just kind of legalistic, unrealistic. So, you know, like maybe those were rules that were good ideas and thoughts, but, but you know, it's all good because, you know, like I have Jesus, right? So we're all good. I don't need to worry about any of those things. God just kind of put those there as maybe just to kind of kill my joy a little bit. At least that's how I saw it. Now, what I want to tell you is that in both of those cases, my heart was wrong and I was far from God. On one hand, I upheld God's law, written law. On the other hand, I explicitly broke God's law. In both cases, I was unrighteous. In both cases, I was living according to the flesh. Why? Because nothing about the way I acted when I acted in what was seemingly righteous and when I acted in what was seemingly unrighteous was done out of a love and desire for God. It wasn't done out of the law of the Spirit residing inside of me. It was done for my own purposes in both cases. One of my favorite writers, as you guys very well know, is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, uh, I actually went to Mere Christianity. I was talking to T.J. about this sermon, and I was like, there's a Lewis quote that I want to find. And I went to Mere Christianity to find one quote of Lewis's and ended up finding a different quote. Because <laughs> you can't preach a sermon without a Lewis quote. And Lewis is speaking over morality and virtue. And he makes three observations that I think are really helpful for us. And so I'm going to read those observations to you. So these are his three observations about morality and virtue. One, we might think that provided you do the right thing, it did not matter how or why you did it, whether you did it willingly or unwillingly, sulkily or cheerfully, through fear of public opinion or for its own sake. But the truth is that the right actions done for the wrong reason do not help to build the internal quality or character called a virtue. And it is this quality or character that really matters. If the bad tennis player hits very hard, not because he sees that a very hard stroke is required, but because he has lost his temper, his stroke might possibly, by luck, help him win that particular game. But it will not be helping him to become a reliable player. His second observation. We might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants a particular sort of people... And his third observation, we might think that the virtues were necessary only for this present life. Now, this is the one I really want us to focus on. We might think that the virtues were necessary only for this present life. 
that is in the other world, the one to come, we could stop being just because there is nothing to quarrel about and stop being brave because there is no danger. Now, it is quite true that there will probably be no occasion for just or courageous acts in the next world, but there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we can become only as the result of doing such, such acts here. The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not got certain qualities of character. The point is that if people have not got at least the beginnings of those qualities inside of them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. That is, could make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness God intends for us. Now, I think that Lewis has done a great deal of thinking for us here, and I appreciate that. And he so effectively and beautifully communicates that. And his truths really help us understand what Paul has been telling us here since chapter 7. And that is that God is forming for himself a particular sort of people. That is not a sort of particular social, political, or even religious denomination sort of people. It is a sort of people whose hearts line up with his. Take David. Take King David. He's a great example for us. Sunday school answer. Why did Samuel, why did God tell Samuel to pick David? What did he say of David? Why was it, why did God say pick that guy? Was it because he was the strongest? Was it because he had a great political uh, future ahead of him? Was it because he had a lot of power? Uh, was it because he was the oldest and wisest? Why did God say, hey, Samuel, tap that guy? Go ahead. Come on. Don't leave me hanging. I'm asking you a question. Why did God pick him? He's a man after my own heart. Thank you, Cody. You get a sucker. Johnny? Got him. Okay. All right. So, um, yes, because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. When I was growing up, I used to think that meant David had a heart just like God's. I mean, he was just righteous and just, and he just, he just always made the right choices and did the right things. That doesn't work, does it? Because that's not David's story. So you look at it and you go, how in the world can a man who committed murder and adultery have the heart after God's own? How does that work? How can that say this of David? It's not like after David committed those things, the Bible stops talking about him in a good way. It's not like it goes, oh, now he doesn't have the heart of God anymore. No. It's not what it says. He had a heart after God's heart. He desired the things of God, even though in his flesh he was still too weak to fully carry those out. His heart was after God's. And the way we know that why is because whenever the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, hey, here's a story about this thing, and David goes, oh, man, that guy should be put to death. He broke God's law. This is unrighteous. It's unjust. And Nathan goes, yep, that's you, man. 
David falls on the ground and says, it's me, you're right, kill me. I've broken God's law. He didn't do what Saul did. Saul kind of faux repented and then went against God the rest of his life. David repented and then followed after God's heart. And that is the proof in the pudding, Christian. You're sitting in here today and you've committed sins this week. And maybe you're going, oh man, I just, uh, I don't want to deal with, how do I, here's the hope. There's no condemnation. Why? Because the desire of your heart is to not do that. And guess what? TJ will get into this more, but the longer you live with that desire in your heart, it will begin to work itself out into your actions. But what the flesh cannot do is change the heart. Only God can do that, and he has done that. So if we look now at, at verses 9, it kind of, through the ending here, it kind of says that you, you, Christian, you, follower of Jesus, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That same sinful flesh that is dying, he will give life to your mortal bodies as distinct from the inner being through his spirit who dwells in you. The Lord has fully bought you, fully bought you through the blood of Jesus. So here's, here's kind of what happens. You're lost. You're bebopping a long life. You hear the gospel. God works what only God can work. And in a moment, you are granted the gift of faith. And you accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. At that moment, that dead spirit that obeys and follows the law of the flesh, that inner being dies right there, that moment, dead, gone. And you're given a new one, his Holy Spirit. What doesn't happen at that moment is this flesh does not die. And don't be a fool. This flesh will die. It must die. But God, desiring to make us into a particular sort of people, to train us so that whenever we get to heaven, we'll actually enjoy it. Have you ever thought about that? If you don't enjoy the things of God on this side, why are you going to enjoy them on that side? If you don't enjoy being just, if you don't enjoy being righteous, if you don't enjoy any of those things on this side of heaven, if being good is not enjoyable to you here, it's not going to be enjoyable there. God is making you into a particular sort of people, and so he doesn't kill this flesh right away. He gives you time, and so you're at war. 
This flesh begins to adapt to what's on the inside, but one day it will die too. And that would be really sad if that was the end of the story. So God saved my soul, but that flesh, it just, it just is gone. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Did you not pay attention to what happened on Easter? No, see, see, I came. I never had that sinful spirit you did. I had, this, I had the law of, of God in me from the whole time. So, so I, I never sinned, but yet my flesh was killed for your flesh. My, my flesh that had never sinned, but was of the same likeness of you, the same material as you, that died in place of your flesh. Your flesh will die too, but did you see what happened to me on the third day? I rose from the dead, and that sinful flesh was transformed into something new. And that is the same thing that I will do to you because I am fully saving you. There are three promises that we get in this text. The first, there is no condemnation for you. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. When you sin, that sin was bought and paid for already. No condemnation for you. Two, he will save your flesh in this life. Your flesh will begin to transform, and your members will stop doing some of the things that they kept doing. I'm going to leave that for TJ for next week. But three, the really amazing thing, Christian, you will be raised from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. And you will be made perfect. And those members will die and be raised from the dead. But it all begins by walking in the Spirit. So how can you know that you have these promises? How can you know that you have the promise of no condemnation? How can you know that you have the promise of being made a new person? And how can you know that you have the promise of being raised? The way you can know is because of the change that's happened on the inside of your heart and your mind. I know for a matter of fact, and nothing could ever steal this certainty from me, that I do not think and I do not desire in the same way that I used to. Whenever Satan starts tempting me, Whenever he starts trying to speak lies to me about my sonship, my adoption, my, my security in Christ, all I have to do is say, wrong. Why? Because look at the old man, look at the new man. Not my actions, necessarily, but what's going on in my heart. And I know that. I know why I do the things I do. I know what my mind is. Sometimes that can even get a little confusing. But even in that, there is a desire to even test those motives, which is even more proof that I want even more to be pure, that I want even more to be holy, so that even my inner motives are righteous. That was never a thing. That was never a thing before. That transformation, Christian... That is how you can know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are his, and there is no condemnation. You have no fear of future judgment. The band's going to come up now, and we're going to play. 
as they do, I want you to ponder what these promises are. We're going to take communion. And as you do, I want you to think about how what we just talked about relates to communion. Jesus sat with his disciples, the people who was he was to redeem. And he gave them a, a beautiful gift, a, a physical reminder of what he was doing for them and going to do for them. He gave them his body. He gave them his blood. And they consumed, literally consumed those things. In essence, what they were saying is, we are accepting into our souls and ourselves the sacrifice that you have made, and the gift that you are giving. Christ had already given them at that point the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. Even though it didn't fully make sense to them what that meant, he had already said, I'm getting ready to send you an advocate and a helper. And then he gave them communion. And they took that and they accepted that. And now as we take communion today, we can do the same. We can say, Jesus paid the price for me. There is no condemnation. And in taking these elements, they're just bread and juice, they're nothing fancy. They're not even that tasty. But in taking these, we are saying, I'm accepting the sacrifice and I'm reminding myself that Jesus, the body and blood of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus resides inside of me. Even as these elements go into me, they don't do anything funky. They don't transform into anything magical or mystical. There's nothing special about the elements. But this mindset, we must and must and must be reminded of this over and over. So as you take communion today, I beg of you, don't do it out of route. Don't do it just to do it. Try to engage your mind. Try to engage your heart. Try to engage your soul. And until that happens, please don't take it. If it means you're here to the last song or even have to wait till after the last song, fine. But please let this be an act of worship as much as singing. That you're accepting again the truths of what Jesus has done for you and the blessed promises that come along with those. Amen. Thank you guys this morning.